0: Growing up in Sydney, Sam Levy is a theatre producer who now resides in New York City. His produced works on Broadway, off-Broadway and in the West End. Prior to founding his own company, Trumper Park, Sam was a member of the executive team at ATM Productions, a company that produces theatre in New York and London and which has received over 80 Tony and 35 Olivier nominations since 1998. Recent productions include Dear Evan Hansen, Les Liaisons d'Angereuse, An Act of God, The Elephant Man and I'll Eat You Last, starring Bette Midler. Until 2009, Sam was Director of Programming at the New York Summer Play Festival, an acclaimed incubator of new plays and musicals at the award-winning Public Theatre in New York. With an exceptional track record of identifying emerging talent, the festival's writers and artists have gone on to receive numerous accolades, including awards and nominations for the Oscar, Tony, Olivier, Emmy and Golden Globe, as well as the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Sam recently co-produced The Ferryman by Jez Butterworth, a play which was awarded the Best New Play at the 2019 Tony Awards. He is part of the producing team bringing the new musical juggernaut Six to Australia in 2020. And he has recently opened the musical Come From Away in Melbourne. It was during a recent visit to see the show that we were able to sit down and discuss our favourite topic, the theatre and the business that it is. Sam, what are you listening to at the moment on your iPod? I dare dare say iPod. Nobody has an iPod anymore, really, do they?
1: No, I guess it's a it, it's a, a mobile phone with a streaming thing. Um, at the moment, I am listening to endlessly the sound uh, the cast album for six, uh, which uh, not only um, am I involved with, but also I've become quite addicted to, and it sort of wakes me up in the morning. Um, so that, which is a very commercial answer to your question, because I, it's well, not like I live and breathe the shows that I work on by any means.
0: Well, that was my next question. <laughs> what, what does a producer listen to? But I guess you are sourcing the material that possibly you're going to produce, or
1: yeah. I mean, a lot of the time, I think for me, uh, I try not to listen to too much of that. I get a lot of it sent to me, so I listen to things that I would not normally listen to. Um, partly out of obligation and partly out of trying to sort of diversify my repertoire. Um, But generally I try to listen to things that aren't to do with theatre because it's a way of switching off. And if I listen to something like a, a Sondheim album or something like that, I will feel like I should be listening to something that I could actually be working on. So I tend to listen when I'm not listening to the things that producers are supposed to listen to, which is hopefully new material. Um, I end up listening to, I find myself, a lot of electronica, things with no words, um, and a lot of jazz. Those two things are sort of the things that... They're your your chill-out music. They're my chill-out music. They're the things that I get to zone out on.
0: Tell me about Six, because it seems to have taken the, the world by storm at the moment. I had, I had a tradesman here today who talked about, he was just in Chicago. He said, oh, we wow. heard of Six. He said, we couldn't get tickets, but um, he said, I, I think I'd love to see that.
1: Well, that's music to my ears. <laughs> a, a, couldn't get tickets, and B, want to go see it. Um, that's very that's very impressive. It's funny because um, I met a 22-year-old at Come From Away Uh the other night um, in Melbourne and he, when he asked me what I was working on, I said six, he said, oh my God, all my friends love it. And I thought, that's just amazing. How do people know about it already? Well, it's a very good question. Um, It has been uh, incredibly uh, well streamed um, on Spotify, um, iTunes. Uh, It is one of the, probably the only show I've ever worked on, which is a genuine viral show. virally growing beast. That's fascinating because that harks back to, you know, the the original concept
0: album of what Lloyd Webber was doing with Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita and all that sort of thing. Yes. So so now the pre-publicity for a show put it on Spotify.
1: Well, and there's much to be said for that, along with videos. I mean, this is something that the producing community, I think, has been wrestling with for a long time. How much do we give away? How much... How much does a bootlegged version of Come From Away help or hurt the show? And I think we're all trying to wrestle with the idea that in fact it probably helps the show and trying to understand, okay, but if it's helping the show, shouldn't we be in control of it? So I think in the case of Six, Six was written by um, two very young Cambridge graduates in the United Kingdom, both 22 years old, Um, They wrote it while they were drunk. They decided that it was kind of funny. They decided to take it to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And that's where people started paying attention, a handful of people. The album was recorded before it really launched on tour. And the first tour was basically six nights in London, a couple of nights in uh, Norwich, a couple of nights in Cambridge, and then back up to Edinburgh in a new production that, you know, had changed from the original but wasn't so significantly different that that it wasn't the same thing. But at that same time, they decided that they would release the album on Spotify. And I have no doubt that tickets have been sold because of that album, uh, much more than any sort of advertising that's ever been done. And in fact, very little advertising has been done for Six. So it's really a uniquely... Uh, it's a social media spotify phenomena and for people in you know my age group we don't understand it we know that that's the future we know that uh if we're going to sell tickets in the future we are going to have to find new ways of communicating with people and yet we have to hire 25 year olds to tell us what to do um we're learning slowly so you're trying to
0: educate that younger generation into becoming theatre goers because hook them when they're young and you've got them for life.
1: That's right. And, and and arts education, which has always been the place in which people get hooked, is disappearing from the United States rapidly. And in and and so in the United States it doesn't happen until if you were a high school theatre kid in the United States, you would then go to college. In the united kingdom you could be a high school theater kid and never go to drama school but you would end up going to the theater as part of your life and in the united states that's not been the case the the people who are young dramatists in high school tend to want to pursue it as a career or, or at least try to, a lot of them do. And so as arts education has been cut from a lot of the pub- public schools, um, this has been one of the the challenges that, that, again, we face is how do we develop an audience when the traditional ways of developing audiences disappeared? And what we do know is that there are people who will go to the theatre um, up to the age of about 36, 37, 38, maybe 40. Then, if they have kids, it stops um, and even if they don't have kids it seems to stop and then they come back in their 60s and so there's this big gap between 40 and 65 that we lose audiences and up to now we've been quite lucky because we've always been worried about well what the hell is going to happen when the 65 years 65 year olds die there are enough of the 40 year olds who are moving into that realm at any given moment but Broadway depends on tourists um, unlike let's say Melbourne and Sydney, where shows are dependent entirely on a local audience, in New York, thirty-five percent of our audience are locals and sixty-five percent are tourists. So a lot of the decisions we make are based on what can sell to the widest possible demographic and the widest possible time, which is not a good way of producing a show and no one should ever do that. Um yeah (laughs) does it require
0: a different um marketing approach uh broadway to say melbourne where you are appealing to tourists on broadway so part of your job is i guess done for you it's just getting them to your particular show whereas melbourne where it's just all locals who aren't perhaps avid theater goers you're trying to hook those people who never go to the theater also i guess um do you adopt a different approach
1: Yes. I mean, you know, I, I should add that I don't have great expertise in Australian marketing. I'm, a, yep. I'm based in the United States and I, I work in New York, so I'm much more familiar with how we work in, in
0: New York. And you've got, I guess, a whole marketing organisations who that's their job too. That, yes. And their knowledge base. Yeah,
1: That's absolutely right. And, and anyone who produces a show and goes into a market that they're not 100% familiar with and try to market a show will inevitably fail. Um, I think what's interesting about places like... So, yes, the answer to your question is yes. They are are extremely different approaches. So in New York, one of the jobs is to get the locals in very early and quickly so that we build enough of a local buzz that when people come into town, the concierges, the waiters, the taxi drivers are telling tourists what they should go see.
0: So you've got all those built-in pimps.
1: We do, we, we do. We have an extensive network of pimps. Um In Melbourne, it's interesting because, and again, this is some of this is sort of secondhand, but from the research I've done, there is, and, and even Melbourne and Sydney are different. So in Sydney, you have Sydney Theatre Company, Belvoir, Ensemble, Griffin. And, and those companies have an audience that buy a subscription at the beginning of the year, and they'll buy a subscription of X number of shows, those dates go into their diary. And then there will be the occasional opportunistic purchase of a show that comes in that either gets good reviews, or they've heard of, or somebody tells them to go see, and they add that to the pile. In Melbourne, it's very similar. You have your Melbourne Theatre Company, your Malthouse, and yet, because there are more commercial theatres and more commercial productions, from what I have been told and from what, I, from what I have seen, Melbournians are a little more adventurous in adding an extra few productions to their repertoire during the, during the year. Yeah. In New York, if you are a subscription holder to Roundabout Theatre or Manhattan Theatre Club or something, you are probably going to an awful lot of theatre anyway. So as commercial theatre producers, we want to get you as well and so it becomes a constant battle, I think in all three places, to get people's attention long enough. And that—that that is, you know, I, I, in some of your previous podcasts and it's sort of lore in the industry that the, the best word of mouth, a best uh, publicity is word of mouth. Yep. If a friend tells a friend, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, we were still putting full page ads in the New York Times, they are so overpriced compared to the impact that they have and we still do it, but primarily primarily to remind people that we exist. Yeah. We know it doesn't sell tickets. We we put an ad in the New York Times these days to signal something. Signal that we're still alive, signal that we're, you know, in our third Mid- year. Third anniversary, yeah. That's exactly right. And and yet word of mouth but remains far and away i think i think uh 70 of people have purchased tickets to come from away because it's been recommended to them yeah
0: i guess the punter's dollar also will only go so far so you really are competing with those other shows and producers to nab that sort of one or two show a year that people go to and especially if they've got a family i guess it's very prohibitive
1: yeah, I mean, in New York, to take family to the theatre nowadays, I mean, you're looking at probably a minimum of, uh, you know, $400, and that's if you've got a discounted seat. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, is a, it is a problem. It also makes our lives a little bit easier because in some ways we have 41 Broadway theatres that are the marketplace and our entire capacity... And we don't have people coming in and adding capacity. So let's say in the airline industry, if you want to get market share, you just come in with more planes and suddenly you have more flights. But the ticket prices go down. We're very lucky in that we don't get new theatres. So we know exactly at the beginning of the year how many seats there are going to be for the entire year across all theatrical productions. Where it becomes complicated is, of course, you have your long runners like Phantom of the Opera, um, that have been the Lion King, that wicked. have been there, Wicked, yeah. anywhere between 10 and 20 years, maybe 25 or 30 in the case of Phantom. And they take up some of that real estate. So suddenly you've got a smaller group of new shows coming in, competing for the attention with, again, limited capacity. So it becomes a lot of uh, cannibalisation Where you are trying to make sure that if somebody's making a purchase, they're buying your show, not someone else's. As you rightly point out, the tourists have learned, thanks to a very well-oiled marketing machine, that when they come to New York, they're going to go to the Empire State Building. They're going to go see the Statue of Liberty, and they're going to go see a Broadway show. And Broadway has been branded as a tourist attraction now. And so what we do every year is try to figure out ways of getting those tourists to come into our shows particularly those that are long runners like come from away
0: and you're also probably competing against you know dare i say the disneyfication of of broadway as well because if there is a tourist um destination that they're going to go to it's probably one of the disney shows or something because it's family friendly and
1: very much so And, and and i think I think putting The Lion King aside, because I think The Lion King is a true unique phenomena that I don't think anyone expected to be as big as it is as a piece of franchised entertainment. I think, yes, I think people come in and they look for brand names like Aladdin and Frozen. And, you know, in the cases of some of the musicals that have come and are soon to be gone in New York, Pretty Woman, um, uh, The Share Show... Tutsi, uh, things in which they can um, quickly identify with, um, and there's some sort of name recognition. What's interesting, though, and this is where all you know, when William Goldman said nobody knows anything about Hollywood, I feel the same way because we used to say, oh, you need a you need a brand name, you need a you need a franchise title to make money on Broadway. The shows that have been biggest over the last several years. Are the exact opposite. We've got yep. Hamilton, which yep. is based on a you know academic tome. We have Dear, uh, Evan, Hansen. Dear Evan Hansen, which is a, a, a piece of original work based on a, a book, young adult novel. Um, there is uh, Come From Away, which is entirely based on interviews with people. All this sort of original source material. Um, and actually, is Dear Evan Hansen... I say this, is Dear Evan Hansen... Is based on the book? Yeah. Um,
0: uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I take material. that back. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: But those three are, had to start from scratch in communicating what they were about. Mm. And audiences have embraced them precisely because they're not the branded entertainment. So while we all lament the changes of the world of entertainment in all sorts of ways and franchises, in some ways we do so without actually digging down and looking, what, what, what do people want to see? And the answer is, in the case of Six, they want to see six women up on stage with a, a sort of feminist message of, of, of empowerment and uh, taking back you know, white old man history.
0: Well, for, she- the, for the listener who's not sure, dare I say it's like the, the six wives of Henry the Eighth. told a la Spice Girls? Is that a...
1: Yes. I mean, sort <laughs> of. It's it's actually based... Uh, it, it, Toby and Lucy, who wrote it, um, were drinking uh, during a Beyoncé concert that they were watching on TV. So there's actually... Uh, it is sort of based on a Beyoncé concert. Okay. But with bits of... Uh,
0: Destiny's Child. Or, correct. Or, yeah, That's yeah.
1: absolutely, and, and no doubt Spice Girl's in there for sure. Um, it's the six wives of Henry VIII who come back as a girl band and they are competing to figure out who will be the lead singer of the band. And what they've decided is that um, the person who has the worst story to tell about their life with Henry VIII will be the lead singer. So they compete over the six stories of telling who had the worst time with Henry and, of course, you know, the the, the, the moral of the story is well, why are all these women defining themselves through this man to head up their girl band? And, you know, it is just a, a very clever piece of pop writing um, that speaks to an audience today that hasn't necessarily been spoken to. Just like Hamilton, showing all these white people played by brown people. Yeah, yeah, yeah allowed people to come in and hear this story for the first time and actually find it interesting <laughs> and told in such a way. I think it's sort of similar with Six. And I think beyond the the phenomena of the social media and, and the, the music itself, I think we're at a stage in the world where people want to hear stories told differently. And I think that's why Dear Evan Hansen is working. That's why Come From Away is working. Um, I think that's why Hadestown is working um, at the moment, is Hadestown is not your average Broadway show. And I think people have gone into it wanting to be surprised by the theatricality of something that we always think is inherently theatrical. If it's in a theatre, it must yeah. be theatrical. But so much of it is a film put up on stage in many cases. And I think that's why The Lion King is different from some of the others because it was so uniquely handled.
0: Uh, and, uh, Natasha Pierre and The Great Comet also. Absolutely. You know, in a, told Absolutely. in the round and in that gutted theatre.
1: Yes. Yeah. And, and, and I think there's... And again, I hate to use the buzzwords of the moment, but I think there's a certain level of authenticity with all of those shows because none of them were built for Broadway. Come From Away was not built was originally built for a bunch of potentially... It was a university, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was a university and some high school kids, maybe, if they were lucky, they thought. Um, in the case of Dear Evan Hansen, it was it was a second stage commission, um, you know, with a commercial producer attached. In uh, the case of Hadestown, it's been... It was a concept album that turned into some some uh, minor productions on the East Coast that that has grown. And I think... Maybe if audiences don't even know that, as a producer, it's so obvious to me that these things have grown up without a committee of marketing people sitting there going, well, what is the best way to get this to Broadway as quickly as possible? Yes. Hadestown has been in the works for 11 years. Wow. I, you know, Come from away, got to Broadway after five or six. Dear Evan Hansen took a while. Um, and I don't think anyone thought it was going to be as big as it has been. Huge. Um, and you know and then there's Hamilton which is a, again one of those outlier unique phenomena that no one will ever be able to explain. Well they've all got
0: scores also I suppose which are your uh, not your usual Broadway fare I mean uh, come from ways very folks um, uh, bluegrass no what what sort of
1: yeah it's, well, I mean we well, sometimes called sort of Celtic folk yes. but I'm not sure. It's a uniquely sort of new Newfoundlander sound, and
0: you got all the rap in Hamilton, yes, all that sort of thing. So and people, hip hop, and hearing Broadway shows with new ears.
1: And 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 you know it, what? What's astounding about that is, of course, as you mentioned, you know, Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita, which did exactly the same thing. And what Stephen Sondheim was able to bring in the '70s and '80s was talking to people in a language that. They Thought they knew, and suddenly hearing it afresh. And that's the exciting part of, of theatre is when you get those moments of thinking, My God, we've been doing this art form for thousands of years, yeah. and suddenly I'm hearing it afresh. And there's nothing inherently unique about the stories of Hades Town. I mean, Hades Town is a myth. Um, there's nothing inherently unique about uh, any of the messages and the themes of some of these shows it's that they have been told in a way that an audience finds them fresh and exciting and new
0: we lost one of broadway's great storytellers this year in, in Harold prince who came up through the ranks from as a stage manager and one of the the, the um form's great directors but also he was a producer and I heard an interview with him, um, you know, it was lots, lots of it played um, after his passing, where he bemoaned the fact that um, somebody today probably couldn't have the same career that he has had, because, of course, he came from a generation where producers, there would be one or two that would do a show. But now, you, it, I mean, you look at the Tony Awards and the best musical play, and there seems to be this whole team of producers. Yes. Is that because shows are just so expensive now? Or what has brought that about, that you can't have just one or two people producing a show?
1: That's a good question. I mean, the answer is yes. It's, it's a very, very expensive business. So, so shows that were costing $2 million to produce 15 years ago even are now costing 10 to 12. Um, so because
0: of the, the rental of theatres or the technology which is used to tell the stories or...?
1: It's a little bit of everything. Royalties,
0: licensing. Yeah, yeah
1: you name it. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, it's... it's. And again, I, I certainly don't want to bash the unions by any means because it's uh, one of the rare shops in, in New York or in the United States that is closed and it keeps wages at a satisfactory level, but it's not cheap. So... Uh, when you're doing a production of Annie in the United Kingdom or Australia and you can put a child on at a relatively low cost and in the case of Australia you have to have multiple children but in the case of London you can have any children as long as you buy them a oyster card and a cup of coffee they can work um in New York you know the, a child who is in a production of Annie is going to be paid the same rate that any ensemble member is getting paid, which is, you know, two and a quarter thousand dollars a week. Wow. So uh, so that's part of it. Your weekly running costs in New York are enormous. Now, that can be offset by the high ticket prices. But the capitalization, the, the, the amount of money it takes to build the business in the very first place, because each show is a new business um, and it's not dissimilar to start up culture in in apps and and Silicon Valley, um, you create a business, you put the team together, and then you have to pay for everything while it goes through this development process. So either you're a very wealthy person and a lot of high-net-worth individuals are working in theatre as producers, um, or you are finding a team of people who can help you finance it. And, in the case of those large numbers of Hades town producers, there will always be a handful of lead producers. There will be a handful of people who've been involved in various capacities um in other productions um as it led to there to the development of the production, um who financed some of it, and then there are just the money people. And in that sense, it's not too similar to Hollywood now, where you can see the credits for. A film, and there'll be fifty producers, um, including half the stars of the show, who are who are also producers of whatever it is.
0: Define for the listener some of those producers that exist. I mean, you mentioned line producer, but you know we hear executive producer and associate producer and producer, and <laughs> what what are the what are the different roles? What well, do they do?
1: Okay, so we we in in theatre we have what is known as a lead producer, and the lead producer is the person who. Uh, is originating the project. And we will call them, for the sake of this discussion, let's call them torchbearers. Right. They're the ones who find the project. They're the ones who push the project forward. And so is
0: that, that like the, um, his name escapes me, he just did Hello Dolly with Bette Midler?
1: Yes, that's like Scott Rudin. Scott Rudin, exactly. of course, yes, yes. Scott Rudin is a lead producer. Yeah. Um, In the case of Come From Away, the lead producers are Sue Frost and Randy Adams. They're the ones who, who obtained the rights to the production in the very first place they will have a very different financial arrangement than everyone else who's involved.
0: And Sonia Friedman in London.
1: Sonia Friedman yeah, in London yeah. is another one who originates, although she doesn't originate everything. Mm. Um, so sometimes she comes on as a co-producer. So we have the lead producer, who is the person who actually drives the the, the project. And the lead producer may be one person, but it may be six people, depending on the production. In Town, I believe it's four, maybe three, um, all women, which is very exciting. Um... In the case of Come From Away, it's four as well, uh, two women, two men. Um, and how they arrange, how decision-making gets made is is you know really up to them and their business. Then you have a group of co-producers and the co-producers, again, may have certain expertise that they're bringing on um, and are involved in certain aspects of the show. They may have um, some sort of uh, day-to-day general management role with the, the show as producers, in which case they will be named. But some of them will be there purely because they financed a portion of the production. And the reason that they are named as co-producers is because when you're doing a show nowadays, and I hope I'm not telling stories when I say that, let's say, Tootsie was around $20 million. To raise that money... You provide incentives to people. And given the fact that around 26% of shows succeed and the other 74 go bust, um, one of the incentives that people seek is their name on the program. Right. And that is part of it. So it's hard to put everyone in one basket because... Again, people who are named as co-producers may be there for different reasons because they have obtained the rights to it in another country and they've put in some money to obtain those rights. And then there are other people, again, who have just simply financed
0: So it's going to be some years, I guess, before you actually see any
1: return for your investment. If you're a theatre investor, um, you should uh, assume that it is going to be quite a while, um, and you should assume that there is a very good likelihood that you will lose your money. Um, that is not the thing that producers are supposed to say. They're all supposed <laughs> to go out and say that their shows are going Have to be I terrific. Have I got a show for you? Have I got a show for you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think that, you know, this has been one of the the, the tough things and, and it takes a very strong lead producer to not um, allow a strategy and a thought process and a creative process to become infected by so many voices and so much money but when investors put money into a show you rightly point out that to see a return could be you know several years so the risk is enormous they're absolutely essential for the process in this day and age we need them in the business and we need them in the same way that you know art museums need philanthropists and not-for-profit theater needs philanthropists the difference is is that in commercial theater you may see a return um and you know in the case of dear evan Hansen and come from away and cats i think cats had returned seventeen thousand percent by about 15 years ago i mean the old adage of you you can't make a living but you can make a killing is not wrong. Um, You know, you you probably would never make a living from from doing it. But I think for a lot of people, it's an important way of supporting the arts and and for a lot of other people, it is potentially a way of, of creating some sort of financial upside.
0: Well, you're an Australian now, living in New York, and a Broadway producer... Where did it all start? Were you were you a maths nerd, a numbers man, or were you a theatre nerd?
1: <laughs> I, I was a little bit of a theatre nerd. I was not a maths nerd. In fact, I was a really uh, not very good at maths. I did I did the lowest grade of maths I could do as soon as I could get to it. Um, no, I thought I was going to be an actor. Right. I, I was absolutely convinced from the moment I saw Oliver in London circa 1978 and I just remember sitting there during the whole show thinking, oh, my God, all these boys are on stage. Why am I not there? This looks so fun. Do you remember and who the cast were? Who was your Nancy and Fagin? I don't remember, um, but it was the 1978 revival. I don't remember, actually. I do have the album, I should know. You should look it up. Because yeah. I listened to that album over and over and over again. But the the epiphany for me in seeing that show was that they were all doing something that I wanted to be doing. So I just thought, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do, be an actor. So I said to my parents, you know, why why have you not let me be an actor? And this was at age eight. And they said, well, go for it. Um, what I discovered over... So my first show was Oliver. My second show was Annie. So then I was like, oh, my God, all these kids are doing it on right. stage as well. Why am I not doing this? Um, So Annie and Oliver were the two things that really gave me the bug. And then over the years, um, my parents took me to theatre. My grandmother, who uh, lived in New York, took me to the theatre. And I was one of these people who tried to get my friends to go to the theatre, which of course ended in disaster at various times because I would make them go see things that they didn't want to see. Um including various not very good revivals of shows that toured around the country. Um, But it never went away for me. And I always remember being excited about backstage and seeing lights and curtains. And I remember once somebody showing me a model of a set uh, that had been built. Um, And I just remember I, I was given that model eventually and I played with it for years desperately imagining you know putting on a show what i discovered over the years was i wasn't a very good actor um
0: so is it through uh, school productions and all that or did you, did you manage to do some stuff after school university well,
1: you say that no i'm thinking because at school productions maybe it's because i didn't ever get roles that i suddenly learned i wasn't that good oh so
0: you auditioned but I auditioned. weren't successful
1: well i i did a drag performance of hms pinafore as buttercup because i was at an all boys school right and then I did, I didn't make it into, I think I was too young for Oliver um, at the time that they did Oliver, um, but again, was mortified that they were all doing Oliver and I wasn't in it. Well, talking about Oliver, just a, a side line here for a minute. Have you heard about this show called Becoming Nancy? Yes, I've seen Becoming Nancy. Oh, isn't it
0: a fantastic premise? It based is on a, a book
1: fantastic premise. About
0: a boy who auditions for a production of Oliver and is cast in the role of
1: Nancy. To his horror. <laughs> to his absolute horror and he doesn't understand. And the teacher simply says, you you are going to be Nancy. So um, where did you see
0: Becoming Nancy? Because it's about to
1: open in Atlanta. Correct. Hmm. I saw it as a workshop um, probably uh, about uh, 18 months ago. Um, and it was being, uh, it was done in one of these old-fashioned things that they still have in New York, or that they don't call them this anymore, but they're really backers' auditions. Looking for angels. Looking for angels. So they invite a lot of people in the industry um, and hope that there will be enough financial support or interest that they can take it to the next place. Um, And I loved it. I thought Becoming Nancy was terrific, and I thought that it was a very clever premise and a perfect premise for a musical, um, and and highly enjoyable. And I'm really curious to see how it's developed because I know that they've done a lot of work since I saw it.
0: Is there, is there any of the uh, Lionel Bart score in it?
1: There is a riff. Right. Uh, they, they, I don't know what the word is. There is a...
0: Uh, a an homage? Or yes, or that's this. exactly right.
1: Yes. A tribute, perhaps. <laughs> an homage. Um, but no, it's not. Right. And And, you know, that is one of the questions that producer has and i've actually spoken with them about it which is well do people expect to hear songs from oliver in this are they going to be disappointed by not hearing songs from oliver how do we communicate oliver in a show that we are not using the songs from oliver and we have a long track record of shows where people have come out of and said why didn't you put this song in so pretty woman was you know, you need the song Pretty Woman in it. No, we don't. Yes, we do. No, we don't. This becomes an endless question.
0: Or oh, Ma- Mary Poppins. Mary which Poppins was another
1: one. Was it Stars and Drew? was yes. also Stars yeah, and yeah. Drew.
0: You're going... You, you're wanting Sister Suffragette and it's nowhere to be seen. That's Hurt. exactly right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and you want to manage people's expectations and you give them a title that they want to hear and you certainly don't want to disappoint them. You don't want them coming out and saying, I really liked it, but God, it would have been so much better if they'd just played Pretty Woman. And yet, you know, that, that is fraught with all sorts of difficulties because if you have an iconic song in something and then you have a brand new score, what are you doing? Are you, are you, are you potentially asking everybody to measure the new score against the song that they loved and heard for so long? And, and it really is a producer's dilemma over a lot of this stuff. Becoming Nancy is a, is a good example of one where I think it's a very fine line.
0: Yeah. Um, and American Psycho, did you see that the, the music of the 80s blended with uh, the boys from Spring Awakening? Yes, Duncan uh, Sheik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that merger of, of scores, music of the period and then original score. Interesting.
1: And, and, and American Psycho was another one of those shows that I think, again, was unable to communicate what it was. And I think in London, when it originally played... Um, and I've forgotten the name of the actor, but it was one of the... It was Matt's... Yes, Matt... Um... Matt, Doctor Who. Yes, Doctor Matt, Who. Prince Matt, Prince Charles. Yes. Uh, Prince Philip. Prince um. Philip <laughs> uh, from The Crown. Matt, um... yes, it People was People are Matt.
0: screaming at us now, yeah, but it's him.
1: Yes. And, and Matt was one of the draw cards, along with the title. When it came to New York, it moved into a significantly larger theatre with a very good actor in the lead named Ben Walker... Um, who had been in bloody, bloody Andrew Jackson. Mm. And, but Ben wasn't a television name. And so he wasn't going to be the thing that people came to see. So I think in London you had a smaller theatre, you had Matt, and you had The Title, and then in New York you had a significantly larger theatre, The Title, and people going, well, why would I want to go see American Psycho, the musical? And in London, it was easy. It was because a it was sold out because it was a small theatre, and b it was because had Doctor Who. Doctor Who, who it. was it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: But at what I saw it on Broadway, it was brilliant.
1: I I yeah. I loved it. Yeah, yeah. And it's another one of those shows that makes me very sad that we are not able to communicate with our audiences effectively about why they should come see our show, and. You know, I, I, I don't think we were ever necessarily good at... We allowed critics to do it, which was a terrible way of doing it because the New York Times had all of this power and we had no power. But now we're in this scenario where to get that word of mouth going, you need two to three months. And Broadway is unforgiving. You don't get to last three months if you're not doing well.
0: Did the New York Times still have a lot of power? It, what Ben Brantley
1: says Jesse Green yes it does yep. it does but I think less so for the big musicals it certainly matters for the plays I think there certainly in the last season um, there was such an inordinate number of plays that came through Broadway unlike anything we've ever seen before and two years before we you know uh, lamented the demise of the, the, the straight play on Broadway and then suddenly we have way too many for the amount of of Theater goers there are, um, and I do think that the New York Times, Ben Brantley, and Jesse Green can help someone decide whether they should go or not go if they were on the fence.
0: Yeah. Even if they're a tourist.
1: I think less so if they're a tourist. Yeah. So because par- they don't
0: necessarily read the New York Times.
1: No, and and you know there are shows that um, like Network with Brian Cranston that got good reviews but not great reviews, um, had mixed word of mouth, not great word of mouth, and the tourists will happily come in and go see Brian Cranston's sight unseen. And they're not looking at the reviews. They're not looking for word of mouth. They're not looking for what their friends have seen. They want to see Brian Cranston.
0: Well, it's like the tourists here. They, they will go and see anything at the Opera House because it's at the Opera
1: House. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So and, sometimes
0: and there's a draw card outside the... The actual show. Yes. Yeah.
1: And, and you know, I think to an extent that works for a period of time. It doesn't, it doesn't work to sustain a show. So in the case of American Psycho, I think it's one of those shows that people had a disconnect. It's a bit like Come From Away in some ways. When, when people talked about it as a 9-11 musical and people thought, are you kidding me? A, that's in terrible taste. B, why would I want to go see that? And with American Psycho, it was the same thing. It was people going, a musical about a guy who serial kills. Why would I possibly want to do that? And the answer is, because we're telling the story like you haven't heard it before. And that's the, that's the exciting thing. That's what we should get you in on. And we can't do that. We, we don't know how to tell people that. Friends have to tell friends to go see that.
0: Well, I was guilty of that. I, I kept putting um, American Psycho because I thought I don't want to go and see a musical about a serial killer. And it was happened to be a night, and I'd seen everything, and there wasn't <laughs> that was on half ticks. And it was it was a, a, a great realization. It was a black comedy, which was hysterical.
1: Absolutely, absolutely not what I expected at all and And I think people come in to come from away thinking that it's going to be very solemn well, and are surprised by the humour,
0: yeah, I think it's the September eleven musical whereas it's actually about September twelve yes, yeah
1: three seventeen
0: <laughs> <laughs> we keep getting sidetracked, but um let's go back again. Sure. What, what did your folks think of you uh, of their son wanting to go into uh, the entertainment industry into the theatre
1: well it was it was acting that I think they were sort of mortified about at first I think my my mother had gone to the high school of performing arts in New York the Fame school so do you have American parents I do which is why I was able to to move there so how did they move what brought them to Australia Uh, I think Richard Nixon and Gough Whitlam
0: Oh, OK. So well, you can figure out the traffic. Two it yes. figures. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the traffic was going in one direction from Richard Nixon to Gough Whitlam. And I think they thought that that was sort of very exciting. They were both um, uh, university teachers, uh, academics. And I think for my mother, who had gone to the High School of Performing Arts and had seen the very hard life of a lot of her friends um, who had aspired to careers in acting and had never transcended to a comfortable career in acting and had spent most of their lives in New York doing odd jobs and teaching occasionally and never having any sort of stability, I think that they were worried about me being an actor for that reason. I think they were secretly delighted that I didn't want to be a banker or a lawyer. Um, And so they were always very encouraging. But in... As you would well know, you know, nineteen eighties, you know, boys' school was not exactly, you know, terribly excited about the prospect of people going into theatre. Uh-huh. And my school had had a history of uh, of actors, John Gaydon and Tony Sheldon had gone to a oh, gone right. to school. You were at the really Cranbrook School. I was at Cranbrook.
0: And Terry Clark was a. A, a teacher there on staff for a while yes yeah.
1: indeed and, and, and in and, fact and
0: Kip Williams who runs the Sydney Theatre Company so yes they're a, a big arts school too yeah.
1: well they've become
0: it right. and I
1: think when I was there they, they they liked it because it made them different from Scots and Kings um, and Riverview but didn't really like it because the parents didn't like it right. so Cranbrook's great dilemma along with all of these schools and, and as you would I'm sure discover at your own school is the parents who are desperately wanting to encourage their kids to be these well-rounded you know global uh, citizens global citizens but in fact also want them to have stable jobs and to have careers that they can understand and at Cranbrook I think that was largely the case the kids were quite you know, well-rounded and were interested in all sorts of things around the world. And in my class, people ended up being restaurateurs and uh, painters and sculptors and uh, lots of people ended up in the arts, but I don't think with their parents' desperate encouragement. So I think I would wanted to be an actor and, and I wasn't terribly good at academics and I thought, oh, well, I'll go to uni and I'll study drama. And at the time, there were two places that uh, had good, solid drama programs. One was uh, University of New South Wales, and uh, my dad taught at the University of New South Wales, so I thought, there's no way in hell I'm ever setting foot in there. And the other one was University of New England um, up in Armidale. So I thought, oh, I'll go up there and I'll study drama. And that's when I realised I really wasn't very good. Um, not through... Not getting auditions, but actually seeing what some good acting looked like.
0: So the course wasn't just an acting course, though, was it? It was an all round sort of venue production experience, and
1: correct, yeah. and and a lot of theory and a lot of focus on on uh, on on classical origins of theatre. So for me, that was always, well, I don't want to do that. I want to go do you know, Hello Dolly, or Annie, <laughs> or Oliver, but. <laughs> I remember one of the exercises we had to do was to take an ancient ritual and perform it before an audience. And I think this is where I got my first bite of what it is to be a producer, because not only was I not good at trying to portray in an ancient Mayan uh, death ritual, I wasn't very good, um, but also... I realized that what I was really interested in was getting the audience to enjoy it. So I kept thinking, well, we want to take out all of the boring bits and we want to do the parts that the audience are going to engage with. And after doing this ritual, which was in my first year of of uni, I thought, huh, maybe there's something in this that that is of interest to me. And then, of course, having all the attention span of a mouse, I ended up thinking, I'll be a director. (laughs) And I directed one piece um, and it was fine, but it wasn't great. And then I thought, I don't want to be poor for my whole life. And everyone I'd met who was an actor and everyone I'd met who was in theatre was poor. And I thought, I I can't be poor. You know, being Cranbrook, everyone was rich. My parents weren't rich. They were, were university teachers. They didn't have tons of money, but I saw what it was to have lots of money around the place, And I thought, well, I don't want to be... Well, you wanted to create your comforts, I suppose. You wanted to be able to afford to go to the theatre.
0: You wanted a, a, a roof over your head.
1: I thought that's probably more intellectual than I had gotten at that <laughs> stage. I think I thought I didn't want to be a waiter.
0: Right.
1: And I, I had seen my mother's friends, who I had become friends with over the years as I'd grown up, and I would go to New York to visit relatives. And I had seen them, and I would go out with one of them to the theatre, and, you know, I would see them... Uh, you know, trying to figure out what was the best way to get the biggest discount on the ticket. And money hadn't registered with me at that stage. I was still in my late teens. And it wasn't until I actually had to manage my own money at uni where I suddenly thought, well, I don't have very much. This isn't fun. And over time, I just let it go. And I stopped being involved in the theatre. I went to the theatre. I was an avid consumer of the arts. But it was a detour for about 15 years um, between uni and getting back into the business where I worked for a startup. To be honest, it's a detour, but it was all producing. There's no question that that I did events, I did, um, uh, you know, marketing, and um, I did uh, lots of things that required operational experience. And that was the producing aspect that I just wasn't smart enough or or intuitive enough to recognise that that's what I was doing. So when I decided that I could no longer work in all of these corporations and I wasn't cut out for it, and I went to a very, very nice career counsellor who said, well, what do you like to do? And I said, well, I like to go to the theatre a lot. And she said, well... Have you ever thought about working in the theatre? And I said, oh, yeah, I did think about that for about 15 years and decided that I wasn't going to be poor for the rest of my life. And she said, well, now you've had 15 years of earning a salary. Why don't you think about it again? And that was this enormous epiphany. Um, And I thought, well, I can't be an actor because I'm not good and I can't be a director because I didn't do it. And what would I do? And I literally pulled up an ad on Craigslist for an organisation that uh, represented uh, musical theatre producers. And it was a service organisation that was seeking a membership director. And I walked into the business at the right time. I had a business degree. I went to business school in there while I was trying to figure out how to make money. Got an MBA. Um, And after September 11th, 2001 the entire of the industry in New York, theatre industry, changed. It had always been a sort of traditional cottage industry of what we call mom and pop, um, but, but small businesses run by a single person, one producer, two producers. Um, and after September 11th, people stopped buying theatre tickets. And although they started buying them again, you know, within six months, the pattern changed, and it's never come back. And some of it's to do with the internet and changes to the way that we purchase. But what used to be an advanced ticket purchase of up to eight, nine months has never come back. And I think September 11th, while probably wasn't the cause of that change, exacerbated it. And suddenly, everyone in the United States who would made plans were being told, don't make any plans you don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. And and I was living in San Francisco at the time. And on September 11th, 2001, I was supposed to fly to New York. And I remember being told, oh, you're not going to get to New York today or tomorrow. And I remember, I have to cancel my tickets to the show.
0: Yeah.
1: And thinking, I, I can't plan anymore. So when I walked into the business just after that in New York, um, people were looking for business skills that I had attained through working in operations and working for a startup internet company and a hedge fund and working in marketing, market research. Those were the things suddenly that producers were looking for because they didn't have any of those skills. And suddenly there was a focus on this thing called yield management. one was like, well, what's yield management? Yield management is what airlines do when they're trying to figure out how to price a seat. So the person sitting in economy class, every person is paying a different fare. And all they want to know is that they got the maximum amount of money out of every person sitting in that plane. That has now started on Broadway. And started with the producers after September 11th when they started saying, hold on, there are people who desperately want to see Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. We'll charge $499.
0: Yes, that was really the first show where we started to see those exorbitant prices.
1: It was indeed. And it was a product of September 11th partly and also a product of the fact that the internet was suddenly selling scalpers tickets. So no longer would you stand outside the theatre saying you want to buy a ticket to the producers five minutes before the show, suddenly you could pick tickets up not only just before the show, but also six weeks in advance when the box office was telling you it was sold out for months. So the producers walked in and said, well, we don't want the scalpers getting this. We're going to hold off some of these tickets and charge a crazy sum, which was $499 at the time.
0: And because the punters would pay that, it's become quite... Quite That's the correct. thing to do, whether it's Evan Hansen or Hamilton or Hello Dolly, and I'm sure Music Man is going to be the same.
1: I think it will be exactly the same, and yeah. and again, we're blessed in this industry by having a very limited pool of seats. So every night, there is, you know, again in the terminology of of airlines or hotels, at a certain time, all your inventory is worth nothing. So the entire goal now is to figure out how to price effectively so that you are maximising your yield at every given show. And if there is somebody out there who is willing to pay $2,000 for a ticket, the producer has been encouraged by market forces, unfortunately, um, and the theatre owners, to charge them $2,000 a ticket. Well, is there a danger
0: that the theatre is going to become an elitist experience? Absolutely. Again? You know? and, and it's horrifying i mean that that kid who's a you know a, wants to be a, an actor of the future or whatever is is just shut out of seeing anything or experiencing anything
1: yes and and that is uh, you know the the my i worked for a company for for 10 years um for a broadway producer and and she was as a wealthy woman herself who was younger than me was always worried about well what you know, my parents would have never taken me to the theatre at $500 a ticket. I would have never gone. And she had all this money. And she was like, what do other kids do? So I think that, you know, I think that each... I think that the theatre owners are conscious of the the situation. I think the producers are conscious of the situation. I think that's why lotteries have become standard across all shows. I think that's why back rows of theatres or front rows of theatres are often charged at 20 to $40. Um, but I don't think... I think when you listen to some people, some people will say, look, kids have iPhones. They are willing to spend money on things that are important to them. And you have to uh, not undervalue what it is that you're selling. That's one argument. Yeah. The other argument is there are lots of kids who can't afford iPhones and they are your potential future audiences because, again, if they're going to go to the theatre until they're in their 20s and then not go again until their 60s, you need to grab them when they're young and they don't have money. And that's something that's very important to me and I think lots of other people. We just haven't figured out ways of doing it in an industry where it costs $20 million to put on a musical. Tell me
0: about the, the difference between Broadway, <coughs> off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway. Is it, is it the, 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 obviously, I think that there's a the difference in the spaces that the, the shows are performed in and I imagine the ticket prices.
1: All of the above. So, so the difference, the official difference between Broadway and off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway is the theatre size. So an, a Broadway theatre, to be called a Broadway show, you have to be in a theatre of over 500 seats. Between 499 down to 99, you're in an off-Broadway house and there's some vagaries down at that lowest end depending on what contract you're working with your actors on.
0: Okay.
1: And then at the 50 seat, you're off-off. But they're designated basically by the size of the house, which is all a product of the unions, that if you work in a 499-seat house, you are working in a very different environment than if you're working in a 500 seat house and this of course is very distressing to producers because we don't understand the difference between a 499 seat theater and a 500 seat theater so we simply rip out the one seat but marketing off-broadway is a much harder sell because we don't get a tourist audience you know 10 percent if that of off-broadway shows are made up of tourists so your locals are going to those you have to price lower you're paying less because you're in an off-broadway theater and your actors are being paid less and your stage managers are being paid less but to sustain a commercial run of an off-broadway show nowadays is very difficult and i think that's not just to do with money i actually think we do, i when i worked uh at my former employer, who was a Broadway producer, we used to do panel discussions and salons to discuss about issues. And one of our panel discussions 15 years ago was, and I quote, is HBO the new Off-Broadway? Wow. And I think that a lot of the fear that was successful Off-Broadway commercially is now being seen and written by playwrights no less, but is now being seen on Netflix and HBO. And a lot of those stories that were <clears throat> small, smaller, less star-driven, less plot-driven, perhaps more character-driven pieces, are now found in a much wider array of, um, of, of channels than we had even 15 years ago. I find myself seeing less off-Broadway because it's less likely to be proper commercial fare. And I don't mean that in a very depressing, you know, can it sell lots of tickets? Okay. I mean that it's more likely to be at this stage something that not Netf- that Netflix wouldn't pick up because it's too esoteric.
0: Um, well, you see something like um, <laughs> uh, Avenue Q which had a big success on Broadway, then diversifying down to off Broadway for the rest of its its run,
1: and that's a genius model. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I, and and Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum and, and Robin Goodman, who produced Avenue Q, are geniuses at being able to make that call and keeping in mind that that show was in a ninety nine seat theater, one hundred ninety nine seat theater, I think, at the Vineyard before it went to Broadway. And everyone said, don't do it, don't do it. It will never translate from off-Broadway to Broadway. And what they, one of the things that Broadway does is Broadway gives you the brand that you don't have if you don't, aren't based on a famous film. <clears throat> it gives you time to grow a title. So Avenue Q, which was very successful on Broadway, still had a life in a smaller house for many, many years because suddenly it's now in the zeitgeist and in in the consciousness of people. Does an award like a Tony <coughs> Award make such a big difference to the success of a show? It depends on the award. So the, the, the traditional answer is it only makes a difference to the best musical. That if you win best musical, yes, you will see a significant bump in your box office grocers. Um, in the case of... Uh, a play so i was involved in the ferryman last year jez butterworth yeah. which was a, a a magnificent piece of theater um we won best play and i would say it helped us in the sense that it allowed us to communicate to people who had been sitting on the fence that we were the best play do i think we could have run for a, another five months because of our Best Play Award? No. I, I think I think if there is a, a performer who wins a Tony for their performance, that can bring people in to see that performer. But I really think that the old adage of it's only best musical that matters is probably true.
0: We were in Australia at present as part of the team... Producing come from away. It's an extraordinary piece of theatre. It is. It was up for <clears throat> quite a few Tony Awards.
1: It did and it won uh, it won best director by Chris Ashley, who has directed it here as well. How did that show into your orbit? So the organisation that I worked for straight after um, my career crisis um, had a had a festival of new musicals that it produced every year for the membership, in which. They would look for new musicals to show to musical theatre presenters and producers because musical theatre presenters and producers don't want to be producing My Fair Lady year after year. Their audiences, whether you're in Iowa or Ohio or California or, or Maine, want to see new material. And you can only survive on The King and I and My Fair Lady for so long. And so this organisation committed itself, when it originated, made up of all these regional theatre producers, to create a festival of new musicals in which it would work as basically a marketplace for people to see excerpts from new musicals. The festival has grown over the years and has become quite an important part of the industry. (coughs) Excuse me, but Come From Away was part of that. Um, It's called the National Alliance for Musical Theatre Festival of New Musicals. It takes place in New York um, over a weekend in October and Come From Away had been selected to do a 45-minute excerpt of this musical about 9-11. And I remember seeing it. um, This was in 2013. I remember seeing it at the time and thinking, um, wow, that was really cool for 45 minutes. How could they possibly drag this out for long enough to be a musical? And then I remember thinking after thinking that, and who would go see a 9-11 musical? So I sort of let it go, but I'd followed it. And when Sue Frost and Randy Adams, who'd produced uh, a musical called Memphis um, on Broadway, which won Best Musical, um, Sue and Randy... Um, both of them have extensive experience in developing new musicals. Sue had worked at Goodspeed Musicals for 30 years. Randy had worked at Theatre Works in Palo Alto, which had a long track record of successfully developing new musicals. And they obtained the rights to it and committed themselves to developing it. And as soon as they were involved, I thought to myself, okay, here are two people who really know what can be done with this. If anyone knows what can be done with this show, it's them. So I kept an eye on it. I kept in touch with them. And uh, by the time it went to a first production in a 350 seat house in La Jolla, California, which was mid 2015, I was in the midst of producing a play in London at the time. Um, And I thought to myself, okay, I really need to see this show. And they kept saying, look, it's going to take a very long circuitous route. It's not a Broadway show yet. It may be a Broadway show, but it's not a Broadway show yet. So we're going to take it from La Jolla to Seattle to Washington, D.C., then maybe take it to Toronto and then see how we go. And again, as a producer, the first thing that I think of, is, oh, that's millions of dollars you've just racked up in bills. It's <laughs> <K-ching, k-ching. laughs> That's a very, very expensive little show. And I flew to Seattle to see one of the, I think, the first preview of the show in Seattle. And it followed it in La Jolla. And I knew the music. And I knew the show. I'd read the script. I, I was quite up on it. But I hadn't seen it as Chris had directed it. And when it got to Seattle, on the very first preview, there were some terrorist attacks in France, in Paris. And there was something about seeing it in a town that has Boeing as its ma- one of its major employers. It's really a major employer in the Seattle region. So they had a direct connection to September 11th with a terrorist attack that had just taken place. And I remember Chris Ashley having a discussion with Sue and Randy, oh, should I say something about the attacks tonight, or should I just let it go? It's the first preview. And everyone decided, just let it go. And I remember watching that first opening bit, and there's a bit in, uh, I I hope this doesn't destroy your sound, but there's a bit at the very beginning of Come From Away where it goes. And I was completely and utterly enthralled from that first sound. And then to have somebody come out and tell a tale in the way that he does, where he says, on the northeast tip of North America, on an island called Newfoundland, and i was just completely engaged from that moment as a piece of storytelling and that 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 convention of breaking the fourth wall all the way
0: through and talking to us as the audience really i think is is a magical way of sort of getting us to go on that journey with the the cast the characters
1: it is and it can work so badly i mean there are (laughs) so many shows i've seen where i thought god help me please don't speak to us just Stop telling me, show me. I mean, that's the old yeah. the story of, of theatre. Don't tell me, show me.
0: Stanislavski.
1: Right. And yet there's something about Come From Away where they've melded this, and it really is a, a, a genius of Chris and Kelly and the writing, because the writing is verbatim, a lot of it. It's taken from interviews, and there's bits that have been amalgamated and characters that have conjoined but the substance of these people are real. And then Kelly Devine, who's the choreographer, uh, and Chris Ashley, who is the director, managed to create this piece that is so seamless that when I saw it in Melbourne last night, I saw the Sunday matinee, it was the matinee performance, and I forgot the show entirely and I just ended up watching the movement again, which... I've seen the show hundreds, you know, hundred and something times. And I just watched it again with fresh eyes. And it's just so
0: cleverly told. Well, the clarity of the storytelling also, I mean, told by an ensemble of 12 actors. Yes. Who all play a variety of characters. But you know exactly who they
1: are at each moment that they... They put on a hat or turn a chair or... It's never confusing. No, no. And, and it's astounding because I can watch a... You know, at the ferryman, I could sit there for the first 10 minutes and go, I don't know who anybody is and I'm trying desperately to figure out who's related to who. Because it's a big company of actors. It's a big company yeah. of actors. Yeah. But with Come From way. there's something about the way, again, that I think the story is so authentic. And I also think, I mean, it's probably on a different thing. But there's something about the way that David and Irene have written it. First, they're Canadians, which makes them probably inherently nicer than Americans and, and possibly Australians. Um, although that's a generalisation and probably silly. But there's a sincerity and a lack of cynicism in the way that they've told the story that I think can only come from... A Canadian, there's not There's not a cynical bone in the story, there's not a sarcastic moment, no. and I, I have no doubt if an American wrote it or an Australian had written it, there would be jibes, there would be takedowns, you know, funny yeah, sarcasm, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and there's none of that. Uh, well, compared.
0: similarly, you, you look at the Drowsy Chaperone, which is a celebration of the musical as a form, but there's yes. never does it poke fun or Or have a barb uh, against the form at all it's just no
1: nor the person who's drowsy trap is a beautiful example (laughs) because it is you you could sit there and it could become this great big joke and it's not it it is it is a love letter to theater and to the people who are obsessive compulsive about theater Mm. and Again, I think if an American had written it, it would probably be something so different. It would be snarky. And and, and again, I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but it would be of an American humour type. And if the English had written it, it would be sarcastic and dry. And there's something about the way I think Canadians maybe are. Again, I hate to make generalisations, yeah, yeah, yeah. but...
0: Well, the Canadians have met so far. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, and it look, come from away in Australia. Was served by a brilliant Australian cast, also brilliant. Nick Brown and Katrina Ritalik, Nathan Carter, Simon Maiden. Um, brilliant actors at the top of their form in this. I think it's I, I loved it. I thought it was a great production.
1: And they are brilliant. And and for those uh, listeners who are sitting on the fence of, oh, should I see it in Melbourne or should I see it on Broadway or should I see it in London, which I'm blessed to be able to say uh, that there are multiple productions, um, see it in Melbourne, see it with the local cast. I, I think they are amazing. I think they have taken the roles to heart, I think that they have made it their own. And I think the best part about seeing it here is seeing it with an Australian audience. And and you and I had talked about it briefly, whether we thought Australians would get it. And not only do they get it, but they find the humour in it, which, unlike any audience I've seen before, they laughed more in Melbourne than they've laughed in London or in New York. In In New York, I think, at first... And it's taken a long time with the show to tell people it's okay to laugh. It is a funny show. It it isn't all about, you know, death and horror. It it's funny. And it's about, you know, misfits all ending up in a in a in a place together. And I think in America there for a long time people were I'm not sure I should give myself permission to laugh about nine eleven. And what we've tried to explain to people is you're not laughing about nine eleven. First it's not a 9 eleven musical, it's a nine twelve musical.
0: It's about community, it's about human kindness and love. It's yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's about it's about the it's about what you do in the face of horrible tragedy. And the answer is humans generally help other humans. And we forget that in a sea of horror stories and and walls and Donald Trump's and uh, you know, terrible politicians trying to close off their countries. And here is a place that's in the middle of nowhere, isolated from uh, from the rest of the country, treated like, like you know, outcasts and inbreds and, uh, you know, hicks by the mainlanders of Canada, and doing something that to them felt so second nature, which was people arrive on your doorstep and they need help you help them mm. and it's such a lovely story because it probably happens more than we ever remember we, 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 we spend so much time looking at such depressing stuff and, and this is such a a testament to human nature when it is at its best
0: what do you love most about your job?
1: ooh I love working with artists and this was something that I didn't know until I got back into the business for my second time round. All that time wanting to be an actor, all that time thinking I was going to be a director um, and then discovering sort of some logistical talents in there and operational talents. What I really love is watching artists doing what they do because I'm not good at it and I don't have a sense. What I'm good at, what I think I'm good at, and what I think my track record is, is that I think I know what an audience will like, or I think I know what some audiences would like, and so I'm comfortable looking at a script or a show and saying, I can pull myself out of this, I don't know whether I like this, but I know what other people will whether they'll like this. And with Come From Away, it took me a while to see, to be convinced that audiences were going to love it um, because I didn't believe it. I thought, here's a 9-11 music. You know, what, how an audience can like it? So I think what I love is working with artists. I, that That is the thing. Watching people put together a piece of art and being able to help Get that piece of art out to as many people as possible. That's what I love. I well, love, I love that.
0: Well, we look, certainly look forward to um, having you give us the opportunity to see much more, many more uh, works of art. Well, I hope day. so.
1: And 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 go see, come from away, and six when they come because then you can see whether I have any taste at all. Oh, I'm but... sure you do, <laughs> Sam. Thanks for chatting the Stages. It's been a delight, Peter. Thank you. The musical Six plays the
0: Sydney Opera House for the summer, commencing its run on January 4th. Find all the relevant information at sydneyoperahouse.com. Now, I know I go on about it, but have you rated and reviewed the Stages podcast yet? Don't tell me it slipped your mind. It's easy. Just go to the podcast directory in iTunes, probably where you've accessed this episode, and scroll to the bottom and you'll see a section titled Ratings and Reviews tap to rate five the stars hopefully you'll hit five and then follow up with a few choice words or phrases by tapping on the section write a review your support here will help to give the podcast broader exposure and lift us in the ratings now go see come from away now playing in Melbourne it is a magnificent piece of theatre delivered by a uniformly excellent cast as always I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to stages